This is Thank You Next. A conversation about race, gender, and dating in our 20s. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jalen. Let's talk. to start with do you want to introduce yourself and tell thank you next listeners a little bit about who you are so my name is ryan worth um i knew sarah from college uh, at the outdoor program i was a knoxville alumni from a few years ahead of her and i work as a rowing coach and uh, have experience with high school and college level i'm currently in chattanooga coaching at the university of tennessee chattanooga and i'm a excited participant in season two of the show. I think the first season was really intriguing and a wonderful experience, listening experience. Oh, we're so glad that you're here. That's awesome. <laughs> it's great to be here. I think that the way you guys present the conversation is great and the conversation itself is uh, really imp- important. We think so too. <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad that you agree. So I'm just curious, um, you listened to season one of our podcast what were some things that like struck you as particularly interesting? Uh, I think one of the first ones was your approach to engaging in the online dating and using the app for dating. Um, you looked at it as kind of a, a a project, but also kind of like a social experiment and then a opportunity for personal growth. And I think I would I spent a lot of time contrasting well, really everything you guys talked about in the first season with my own lived experience and my perspective on a lot of this stuff, um, kind of from, in a lot of ways, from the other side, um, as a, as a male and someone who, I guess with the dating, it just kind of started out of like almost boredom. Like it was, I was single. And so getting on Tinder the the first time it happened was just kind of like, well, I might as well see what it is. (laughs) And so it was very haphazard and with no plan at all up front. So from that, from the like dating app piece and from the like lived experience piece, I think it was really cool to listen to you guys discuss things from the other, the other side of that. Yeah. We're excited to hear about your experience too. To start with, do you want to talk a little bit about how masculinity was modeled to you growing up and along with that, how relationships were modeled to you growing up as well? Wow. Sure. Um, I think a very important part to the modeling for me is that I do have a couple great parents. They're still together. My dad is, in a lot of masculinity stereotypes, a very manly guy. But um, actually, out of my entire family, he's probably the most emotionally vulnerable and most family-oriented. Like He's the one who's, who gets kind of most upset when the rest of us are like, do we really need to be together on Thanksgiving? He's he's the one who's like, yes, we definitely need to be together. I want to be around you guys. Um, So that was really interesting. And I think that plays a big role in the way masculinity was modeled for me growing up, was my father as as a primary role model in that. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any brothers? Let me ask that first. No, so I have have just my dad. Okay. um, And then I have a younger sister. So I'm an oldest sibling and... For me, the other people close to me in my life, and particularly other guys and peers, were my friends at school and Boy Scouts or on my sports okay. teams. Okay. All right. And how do you now as an adult define 
what toxic masculinity is and what you think healthy masculinity is. Oh, so toxic masculinity to me, I think when you look it up, it talks specifically about just kind of the way masculinity restricts emotion. But in my definition, that really doesn't have anything to do with it. To me, toxic masculinity is the way that people think manliness or masculinity is and how that contributes to um, a lot of negative things like rape culture that you guys talk about. And I mean, that's the biggest one for me. It's this idea that uh, the alpha has to be this way. And so I think the lack of emotional vulnerability isn't necessarily a component for me. It's this domineering, owning type of mentality that comes out of that a lot of times. Yeah. That, that to me, kind of is more what I would have defined it as. And then healthy masculinity, I think that I that acknowledging gender roles and differences in genders is essential to understand our society and the way people interact. I think sibling order is a really interesting thing. But mm-hmm. um, like healthy masculinity, this was something that I did a little bit of as a coach, just asking high school athletes that question. One of the answers that that really stuck with me was when it's looked at as being someone who needs to be a positive influence in the community. So yeah. healthy masculinity is simply guys that are uplifting to one another, to their female counterparts, and they play a positive role in contributing in a positive manner to the people around them. What do you think that looks like in action? I guess I'm really curious about the fact that you said that you don't feel as if a lack of emotional vulnerability plays into toxic masculinity, because it it seems to me that that would be connected to what you were talking about when it comes to having to be like an alpha male. Because I think that a lot of times the way leadership is, I mean, very poor leadership is shown, but even also people who are successful based on our societal standards, I think that they sacrifice like relationships to be super successful potentially. I guess when I said I don't necessarily associate that lack of emotional vulnerability of toxic masculinity, I meant more in the definition. Okay. I think in the way it plays out in society that it's a massive um, component because, and like your example being successful leaders or successful business people or successful in whatever kind of construct you want to place it. Yeah. I think a lot of times it is, it is a lack of, I guess, kind of acknowledging the person as a whole and leaving the emotional component out of things can make you feel more successful, particularly in business decisions or, one of the things I think is material goods, like the collection of material goods, wealth, the hot wife, the objectification of what you have. I think that often gets kind of clumped into this ideal of toxic masculinity, as I see it. It's a visual thing for me. You know, I picture that person. Yeah. I also, I think uh, you might correct me, but I think I heard you saying that it can be like a not only a suppression of emotion and like pushing that down, but also asserting oneself over um in an overt like unnecessary way like kind of like a both and I don't know like I I I can see both sides like suppression of emotion but also over assertion of one's presence contributing to toxic masculinity yeah I think a lot of that's that alpha beta relationship um I think people who are naturally more of a beta they kind of they feel comfortable not necessarily just being a follower or a sheep, but they feel comfortable letting other people take the lead. Um, a lot of times masculinity 
can't be seen as hand in hand with that. Whereas that's just kind of some people's personalities. Yeah. I think, I think everything we just talked about really has to do with power dynamics and who is like the more powerful person societally in the situation, like in any given relationship. In, for example, like a dating relationship, like one thing that I've, that we've talked about on our show before, or maybe we haven't really gone in depth, but I think we see a lot of like cultural um, things that point to this is in situations with men and women, a lot of times like women might feel as if they owe men something or as if, yeah, like they're expected because a man has done a certain thing. And I think I'm curious because I'm not a man, like what it would be like to be in the situation where you are like the more powerful of the two sexes. Like, I mean, for example, I was talking to a friend of mine and she had called the police on someone and then the cops showed up, they were men. And the two other men who were there told the cops that my friend had been lying about what she called the cops on and the cops like didn't believe her. And that is like a perfect example of like power dynamics and people not believing women. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it like play out on like the national stage like so often. And I think that when you start to develop an awareness around that, maybe it makes you see like nuances in relationships a little bit differently. Um, I don't know. I don't know how like much in depth you thought about that because I feel like that's like a really. Well, like, I think I think where question. I get stuck is that um, I have to admit that I don't think I'm very good at recognizing and understanding a lot of those things. And you know, maybe I can just chalk that up to the fact that I am a male, um, and that just kind of fits that. Uh, lack of emotional awareness and when I think about that power dynamic in like relationships romantic relationships with a partner I think that I really like a person who's very nurturing that that is something that is kind of important to me that's a love language that speaks a lot to what I need out of a relationship I don't like saying that that's actually kind of like it like this is just a good example of how out of touch either just because of the way I am or the way that I've been raised, I don't really like unpacking some of this. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know to what extent that's a power dynamic difference or just kind of the type of person who I prefer to be in a relationship with. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting to me, I'm just thinking about other conversations that we've had with um, guys about things like this and hearing similarities in like the difficulty and how it is to share what they need in a relationship it seems much more difficult on the male side saying, oh, I really need like physical touch. That's my love language. Or I really, you know, love like a nurturing spirit or something like that. Whereas I know me and Sarah often <laughs> have conversations about like exactly what we need in a relationship and what we're looking for. And I, I don't know if that is a, um, you know, gender thing. Cause I don't have that many examples. So I couldn't say guys are like this, girls are like that. Cause that's not fair. But I don't know. I'm just like thinking back and drawing correlations. It's interesting. Yeah. I really don't think that I'm very good at understanding a lot of these things. I don't pick up on cues very well. Um, it, it's come around in business. It's come around um, with family. It's yeah. come around in relationships. Um, I, I just think that emotionally I'm, I, I can finally get myself around to acknowledging what I should do or what I want. And then getting it out of my mouth is a whole nother massive step. It feels like a hurdle sometimes. Yeah. And I think to some extent that is just kind of that. It's a gender trait. Um, but then to an extent, maybe that's just something that um, I've never exercised enough. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I don't know that this is necessarily that I can like say this definitively. <laughs> um, but I think that 
well, I don't know. I think that as women, we are socialized to take into account how other people are feeling. And then also at times use that to our advantage to get what we want in a way that maybe men don't have to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, as you're talking about that, I'm immediately going to this kind of the model of the hunter gatherer and mm-hmm. the way that, um, women are very good in social environments. Um, and you can look at that in a negative light of being manipulative or in a positive light of being better in tune to that. Uh, I think that's absolutely true, at least in my personal lived experience. Um, but there are a lot of guys who I know who are definitely better than me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I could just be, I could be a little farther down the scale than others. It's definitely an individual thing. Um, I guess like switching gears a little bit, do you want to talk about your experience dating on Tinder and what you learned from that and what that was like for you? <laughs> well, we have two problems there is that it, I think it actually covered quite a long span of time on and off. And my memory is not that good to recall. We also don't have that much time. Uh, but in summary, <laughs> I, I like I, I kind of started out. I don't. I never really went about the online dating or dating in general um, for hooking up. Anytime I was kind of actively seeking out dates with people, I wanted to create some level of genuine connection. You know, be it just meet somebody different and share some kind of experience or. Um, you know, like I was in a place in my life where I was actively looking to try to kind of find the one and it kind of ebbed and flowed. And I've through online dating, actually, there are a pretty good handful of short to midterm length relationships that came out of that for me over the last uh, close to 10 years, I guess. Wow. Really? Yeah. I don't think that it's usually great for anybody to remain friends with an ex but i'm on amicable terms with a few of those people yeah Uh, but then there were other people who they didn't turn into long-term friends but like i i lived in different geographic places and when i was living in florida there were a couple people who i had met through an online dating app either tinder or bumble for me and we went on a date or two and then it was kind of like you feeling this i'm not really feeling this but that's cool you're kind of cool and we continued to kind of hang out for a while there. And so that was that was really important. But I think that came about in the way you utilize the app. It could become really clear early on in conversations, just in the messaging back and forth, where you what you're looking for and where it's going. Hey everyone, if you've enjoyed listening to Thank You Next, we would love it if you would share an episode with a friend, subscribe, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's go back to the show. So when I first, I think, started using online dating apps, I was a late adopter to it. Um, I guess maybe it's probably pertinent information that I had had just three relationships that had all lasted at least like a year and a half. Uh-huh. Um, like from high school until I think the first time I remember online dating being around. I was a Tinder Plus user at one point. Oh, fancy. <laughs> it was when uh, there was thumbprint recognition on the phones and um, I was passed out drinking with some friends and um, one of them actually bought Tinder Plus on my phone <laughs> while I was asleep. Um, but then I like didn't, I, I renewed it. I, I So I'll admit, like I did actually end up using it again because... Um, like I mentioned, I was kind of traveling a lot for work and stuff, and I really did kind of enjoy 
very few dates and actual real meetings ever arose from me um, traveling to other places. And I think some of that was just that I wasn't really necessarily interested in hooking up with people. So I didn't pursue that very aggressively. But one of the big ways that it differed from when I first started was that it was just kind of like a, let me see what this is all about kind of thought process. And then I started to become more and more organized and strategic in the way that I was handling my online dating accounts, um, Tinder and Bumble. It was to the point where like I almost had a, a monthly schedule of what jokes I was telling so that I wouldn't kind of lose track and accidentally repeat a joke. And nothing more would be more embarrassing than asking the same joke to the same person twice. But I think part of it, too, is just interesting for me to have a control. Uh, I think there was a little bit of a scientific method um, probably creeping in. And I would hate to admit this to any of my middle or high school science teachers, but I wanted to, I wanted to do the same things through my profile and the way I initiated conversations and the way that went so that I could easily compare the different women that I was exchanging messages with. Uh Uh-huh. That is a very scientific way to approach that. (laughs) Did you feel in that same mode of thinking when you found your fiancé? Very much so. It had gotten to the point where I would try to put all of my dates kind of in one week per month. It's a lot of work, right, to send messages and make plans and figure out what the other person wants and just like any relationship – starting arranging a first date um it takes a lot and so i would get to the point where i'd be like all right i'm gonna try to set these all up this week this is a good week for me i can get all my work done and just go on a date every night just about or you know two or three nights a week would probably be the more the norm but the the week that i met my fiance yeah it was like a it was a first time meeting ever on a monday night and then on a tuesday night it was like a maybe eighth or ninth date with a with somebody um and that had actually become like a pretty familiar we weren't we weren't really physically very involved at all that we were we were kind of exchanging daily messages um texting and stuff but then on wednesday night i was pretty kind of just tired (laughs) and i Mm -hmm. was like um i was like i don't really feel like going out tonight the the night of that we had planned to meet up i'm not really feeling like going out um you can come over to my house if you want to have a drink here and um really expected her to be like, no, let's just reschedule. But she was like, yeah, okay. We're, we're too and I had a roommate, so I think that made it a little less creepy. Uh-huh. Um, probably strikes on her for actually showing up. But anyway, yeah, she came over. Um, we watched Madagascar 2. And yes, solid choice. Had some hot toddies and talked for like four hours. And then um, the very next night I went on another date. And, uh, then the next night I went on like date number 10 with a different person. And then on that Saturday, uh, she actually, this is just kind of the person she is. She had just met me and invited me and my roommate to come to a party that her and her roommates were having at their place. Okay. And it wasn't like a big kegger rager. Nobody knew each other thing. It was like their group of friends. Wow. there was like a white, there was like a gift exchange, like a white elephant gift exchange. She was like, yeah, I remember a gift for the exchange. <laughs> <laughs> that is a and, very uh, intimate gathering. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was very obvious right from the start that she's not the type of person to need a lot of friends. Um, she just, she just cares a lot about the ones that are close to her. That's like a cool thing to meet, know about someone right off the bat. I guess if you do meet someone's friends or have that like situation immediately, you can gain 
a valuable insight into someone's character. I like that. Another question that I had asked or that I want to ask you is, um, do you feel like your personal growth or like the way that you approach dating improved or did you see changes in the way that you approach online dating from the beginning to the end of your use of Tinder? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, like I mentioned, one of the things just becoming very systematic and organized in the way that I was approaching it. Uh Um, I had created a lot of routine, I guess, in the way that I would do it. It was like, it was to the point where like at work, I would, on certain days of the week, I would have a pretty regular schedule for certain days. And there were days of the week where I would have times where I would just spend like an hour laying on my back on the couch and just get through tindering for the week. Um, <laughs> which was obnoxious. Now, Grant, I will say that at, at that time, specifically that I'm talking about, I lived in a smaller town. And so the radius that I was searching in to really find anything was pretty big. And so I think that's when I started to get really systematic about it because if I was going to arrange dates, it usually meant quite a lot of driving um, to go meet people at kind of a halfway point. Uh Uh-huh. And let me ask you, what do you think you, do you think you had a specific picture of what you were looking for? Like when you had seven dates in a week, were you really just looking for the one or like for friendship or kind of all of the above like yeah I think I was I was kind of open to just about anything on the spectrum from like friendship to like uh you know maybe sparks do fly and this is maybe a one night thing um I don't I think that I kind of ebbed and flowed on that because I didn't really ever want it to be just about a, a hookup um but then going into things I think I have a little bit of a picture of kind of like I mentioned before I had had three pretty serious long relationships um uh, uh-huh. before and I think I had learned a lot about what um, <laughs> what kind of person it takes to deal with me in the day-to-day. Yeah. <laughs> and who was probably not going to be successful at handling it. Um, and I, just to kind of typecast, it's like I used to joke that it's probably going to have to be a teacher or a nurse um, <laughs> to, to have the patience. And funny enough, she was working as a nurse tech when we met. And oh, is wow. And your school teacher now. Um, that's so funny. <laughs> Um, but, and like those, those occupations have some very, um, you know, some very specific and kind of telling, um, people and the personalities of the type of people that can handle those jobs and enjoy it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I guess I, I do require some nurturing and um, patience. How do you feel like you have cultivated healthy masculinity, um, over the course of your adult life as you've become... I guess more aware of toxic dynamics and stuff like that. How do you feel like that's evolved for you? Absolutely. Well, I think it's evolved a lot. Um, first, first step in that evolution was acknowledging that although I didn't harbor any um, particularly negative thoughts um, in a lot of these different categories of racism or bigotry or um, like um, homophobic thoughts that some of my words and my actions um, made people think that's probably where I was. Mm-hmm. And some of it was probably stereotyping, like the Christian white male, too. Um, but then to some extent, I was it, it's really on me. I'm not trying to say that that's what it was. And I had, I had a pretty good friend. I mean, we were like 
we were like co-leaders of our, the Boy Scout troop that we were in together. And he ended up coming out um, later in college. But, you know, and we had kind of lost a little bit of touch at that point. And so that wasn't, that really wasn't anything. But then I had a roommate in college who, mm-hmm. we lived together for two years. And I was one of the last people he came out to. And he had, he had expressed concern to some of our other friends about telling me because he was worried I was going to be mad. And huh. um, that was, that was really, that was really telling um, and kind of a wake up call to me and, you know, like what in my behavior had made him feel that way? Yeah. Which, yeah, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big regret. Um, but also, a kind of a starting point and really becoming yeah, more sure. cognizant of what I, the way I'm acting and what I say, and, you know, kind of how I carried myself. He didn't even tell me that he didn't want to tell me. Right. Um, my other friends did after he finally, he was kind of like, all right, I want to do it. He like invited me out for drinks one night, uh, kind of around the holidays. You know, most people weren't really still around town, um, and we both happened to be. And um, he's not really a drinker or a heavy drinker, and he was really going to town that night. And then he just kind of told me, and like all of a sudden, I was like, "Wow, why did that? Why was it so hard for you to say?" Um, yeah. But in the classic way that I like to stick my foot in my mouth, I, th- I think the first thing I said was. Well, I can see why you watched me walk around naked for two years, like, you know, just falling into that, that rhetoric of, okay, so this is a choice you're making. Yeah. So that's super telling in the, in the way that that, um, that rhetoric was just being repeated by me. Yeah, for sure. Where do you think that toxic masculinity stems from? You talk about having a dad that like, wasn't afraid of emotion or, you know, but you know, I'm really like kind of just the last few weeks um, of kind of looking back through, listening back through some of the episodes of you guys' podcast and stuff. I've been trying to unpack that, and it's very subliminal. I cannot pinpoint a single person that was ever very, that was actually close to me or that I cared to be around uh-huh. who was that way. Um, I have to say that it was probably just a lot of like pop culture and like, media and things that I was just kind of subliminally absorbing that. It's kind of made me act that way. Yeah. Or it didn't make me. It was it was just like it was informing. Yeah, it was just informing my rhetoric and the way that I, and some of the ways that I, I spoke and the jokes I would make. You know, it was mostly, and I think that was it, is I felt like it could all just be excused. I didn't really put a lot of weight into it. And I also wonder, too, last night we actually had another interview with a friend of mine who is bisexual. And one question that they asked us was, when did we first, Daylon and I, when did we first become aware of people who identified in other ways besides straight? And I think for both of us growing up, we were pretty unaware of anything outside of the normal. Heteronormative. What we think of as normal, like the heteronormative Mm -hmm. examples. And I'm guessing it was probably pretty similar for you. And then I think it's pretty easy to just think, oh, I don't know anyone who's gay. I don't know anyone, so I can say this, and it doesn't really have implications on people that I may care about, when in reality, it probably does. I think that's a part of growing up and becoming more aware of the wider world. Mm-hmm. So, um. I, I also want to ask you, so you said that the um, messages of toxic masculinity were probably very subliminal because you can't think of any necessary overt messages as you were growing up. Do you think now... Are you more intentional with like counteracting that or have you found any 
resources that do encourage healthy masculinity, like if things are subliminally being given to us as the way to look at the world, then we have to actively work against it if we're going to see change. I think you've got, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Um, I think we have to be more active and proactive than we probably even think is maybe necessary. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a hard thing to do. I think it's something that, you know, maybe just kind of out of some of that personal experience for myself, I started being very proactive about, or maybe it's because of kind of some of my work as, you know, working as a coach. Um, I feel like there's, there's this implied, this implied duty to also be shaping shaping the character of the athletes you work with. I think that I'm I'm fairly decent at it with um, the younger group, like the high school aged athletes. Uh-huh. But then the closer people get to my peer age and into my peer group, the harder time I have with it. I mean, to the point where like I have a hard time even calling out peers, even if they're a friend or someone who I feel like I have a really good rapport with. Oh yeah. If I even notice it, it right? So like you like. A lot of times I won't even kind of it, – it won't flag until recalling the conversation later. Yeah, the same thing happens for me, mm-hmm. definitely. I can identify with that. It's challenging. I think that I always feel super guilty after the fact. Like I should have said something. I should have done something. I mean some, – and sometimes I manage to. But sometimes I wonder about – I guess with like families and holidays and stuff, I, when people bring up things or – have differing opinions and beliefs. I think it's important to have discussions that are maybe productive about why that's not necessarily a really open viewpoint. But then at the same time, I feel like some people are very closed off to absorbing any new information. And in those situations, I wonder about when it, when I should bring something up. What do you two think? Yeah, I feel like I'm constantly trying to figure out okay is this a time that I'm supposed to you know stand up for what I believe is right and and challenge this opinion or not and I think it highly depends upon your relationship with the person because with family I feel no hindrances to challenging different ways that like my siblings see things like and we're peers you know we're around the same age but when it comes to people just like that are further distance, it's much, much more difficult because there's not that, oh, I have your unconditional love and you're going to accept me even if we disagree. So I think it just takes a lot of courage, but yeah, it's, it's very difficult for me too. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that um, the courage to say something uh, is a component. And then also just kind of the time and place. I think I think of some of that as a scale. Um, a lot of times it can be nice to just try to hear something and then get the person to better explain what they're saying. Not necessarily because you want to tell them why it's wrong, um, but just to try to see that, that perspective of, you know, whatever the situation is. Um, I feel like I'm almost the other way though, Jalen on um, with family and then those people more distant from me. I feel like I'm better at addressing it with people that are more distant from me. I guess huh. um, a relationship that I have, I have less stake in, I'm less worried about ruining. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll start doing the why thing. I guess the example I'm thinking of is a few months ago, I disagreed with my family member's opinion on detention centers at the border and putting children in cages and maybe next time I'll just say, why do you think it's okay? Honestly, I don't think it would go anywhere. But 
but maybe I'll... It's a starting place. It's an experiment. (laughs) And that concludes this episode of Thank You Next. If any of the topics we discuss in the podcast trigger feelings of guilt for things you've said or done in the past, feel free to do some soul searching, but please know we're not looking for apologies. We're not mad at you. We felt the need to talk about the realities of our experience, and we wanted to share it with you. If you'd like to send us any thoughts or helpful feedback, our email is thankyounextpodcast at gmail.com. Before we go, we'd like to say thank you. Thank you to Jay Bush for creating our podcast music. Thank you to Holly Oddly for designing our cover art. And thank you for listening.